joining us today on Dead Headspace, where you can find us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and many other platforms. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, here with my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Hello. And we got the infamous Ken McKinley of Silver Shamrock Publishing. Hi there. And today is going to be a different episode where uh, we title it Ask a Publisher, where we have a few questions from fans and uh, myself and Brennan. So, Ken, our first question, followed by two others, comes from none other than Michael Clark of the Patience of a Dead Man trilogy. Uh, First question he asks is, what's the average length of time it takes to release a book from submission to publication? Well, Michael, um, good question. It's going to depend on a few different things. Obviously, it's for us, we're a little bit different than some of the other presses out there where we've continuously held uh, open calls for all the prospective authors and stuff out there that want to submit with us. That's kind of uncommon. It's not really something that's done in the industry. Most people have an open call window and then you hit that window is what you do. So with us, once we accept it, um, right now we are anything that I'm accepting right now, we're looking at pretty much next summer to release. So a good time frame is, typically somewhere around a year's time great uh second question what are the steps involved during that time frame so the steps involved are going to be editing we get the manuscript and once it's been approved and the contract has been signed then we send it over to i typically send it over to kenneth kane to do pretty much most of our editing and he goes through it and works with you to get the edits and stuff through get everything nice and cleaned up um any plot holes stuff like that And then from there, what we do is we send it over to proofreaders and let it get another set of eyeballs on it to make sure that, you know, any other flaws or anything else that you might miss, um, get that cleaned up. In the meantime, while all that's going on behind the scenes, we then get the covers made for it. So right now, Keelan Patrick Burke's doing the the lion's share of all of our covers. I send uh, information and stuff over to him on kind of what we're looking for, and I try to work with the author a little bit to see what their thoughts and ideas are, uh, try to get their vision a little bit of what they see, and then take their ideas and silver shamrock it over to uh, Keelan, and then Keelan puts his magic touch on it, and anybody that's ever seen his covers knows exactly what I'm talking about. And then once we get that back, then it's it's all about a bunch of marketing, getting stuff out on social media, get people aware of it, putting it through its paces, get it over to proofreaders, get some good feedback and stuff on that, start to get a little buzz for it. Uh, It's all about, in this market, you've got so many voices crying out to be for their attention that you got to get above that noise to make it so you're noticed. So that's what we try to do. we got a little bit of a marketing plan for, depending on the author and the story, we go through that, and then as we get closer, we ramp it up even more. And then hopefully by the time that it's ready for release, people are salivating and drooling and snarling and just can't wait to get their claws on it. So that's the process. I like that description. That Third and last question from Michael Clark. Have you ever poured blueberry maple beer on your pancakes? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> that's a simple one. <laughs> Brennan, why don't you uh, take, take over I, for the I, next I have one. a follow-up, actually. Uh, what's... Uh, 
Out of curiosity, what's the average length of time that one of your books spends in the editing process between when it leaves your hands, goes to Kenneth Kane, and bounces back and forth between uh, him and the author? Um, so for the editing process, again, it's all going to depend on length of the story. Typically, it's he tries to do, and depending on the length of the chapters, but I mean, let's say they're just your Joe average length of chapters. He tries to do a chapter a day. And the way he does it is he goes through the whole manuscript with edits before he sends it back to the author. When I do the edits, I try to do a little bit more bite-sized pieces where I send it back. It's just difference in, you know, preference on how to do the editing. He's honestly, he's a, he's done a lot more editing than I have. So that's probably why it's just easier for him to do that. For me, it just seems to be easier to go in, in pieces because I've got so much more other things going on rather than just editing. But he tries to do a chapter a day, and then once that is completed, he sends it back to them. And it, a lot of it's going to depend on the author. I mean, obviously, we've got a time frame that we try to to stick with, but you know, some we're not fortunate enough all the time to be full time authors, and they've got day jobs, and you got kids, and you got family, and you got this stuff. And there can be time constraints where they may not have all the time in the world to do it, or maybe stuff comes up, or life happens. So there's a lot of variables that can happen on it, but your Joe average stuff, you're talking, oh, let's say a month hmm. or or even less, actually. I mean, it just it just depends, again, on the length and everything else going through it. Every book is different. That's not uh, – that's way shorter than I thought it would be. <laughs> well, okay, let me back up a second. When I say editing, I'm talking just the, the Kenneth Kane portion of it. Then as you go to proofreaders and things like that, now obviously you're, you're adding more length and stuff on it. So, but just the first phase of it where it's going through the actual proofreading mm. and it's sent back to the author to, again, fill in plot holes, grammatical stuff, um, the, the meats and potatoes of it, the, the big stuff. And then when it goes into proofreaders, now we're fine tuning it. You know, we've got the engine running, but now we need to get it purring so it's like a Lamborghini. Hmm. Why Kenneth Kane? Good question. So when I wanted to do this, I'm a firm believer in surrounding myself with good people when it's something that I don't know. I'll be the first to tell you, I was not an editor, a fan, a reader, sometimes writer, yes, and a business person. That's me. But as an editor, no. So I approached a couple different people that I had on my radar for editing, and it just wasn't just from initial talks, it wasn't a good fit. It didn't feel right. Um, and then I had an author ask me, hey, what do you know about Kenneth Kane? I've heard the name, but I've, I've never had a, a conversation with him. And they said, you know what? He does really nice work, and he's kind of an up-and-comer. Uh, hmm. He did a really nice job on, and they, they mentioned an anthology. Um, to be honest, I don't even remember which one it was. It's um, Crystal Lake Publishing, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it was one of theirs. I don't know exactly which one it was. Mm. I know he was he, doing some of their stuff. He did one called, uh, I think it's called When the Clock Strikes 13. Yes. I think, I think yeah, that's yeah. exactly the one that was, they told me that they saw and he did a good job to give him a try. And I got a hold of him and the stars aligned. He happened to be in a, a spot where he could use some more work. And he was just coming off some projects, so I threw some his way. And the it was beautiful. I mean, the, the process went so smooth. The guy's really good at what he does. And we have very similar personalities when it comes to a, a work environment. It's We want the same things. We, we got kind of the same goofy humor. 
Um, we can bust each other's balls and not get offended by it. It's it, it works really, really well. I mean, he's just a solid, solid stand-up guy, and he does a damn good job at editing. Yeah, great points. Devil's Creek is my first self-admittedly fully through, right? Uh, Silver Shamrock Publishing, and I mean, I'm not seeing anything that's sticking out. I'm not finding anything as a reader. It's just very smooth. It's very smooth. You know, I will have to say this. I mean, as much as we'd like to take absolute full credit for the editing on that, when Todd sent that to us, that had already been proofread and edited a few times. So mm. it was pretty damn clean coming to us. Um, there really wasn't a lot there. We, by the time we got it, it, it was ready for some fine tuning. There really wasn't a lot of big meaty stuff to take out of there. He had that thing really clean. So, all right, then that actually makes me curious. Is that a common thing where um, this is probably really not as easy as I thought initially to ask, but is that a common thing where writers submit a manuscript and they have it previously edited because I'm thinking, well, you got all forms of uh, authors coming to you. So answer that however you want. Mm, this was the first time we had one that was cleaned up this much. I mean, typically a good author will send it through his channels and every author that's been around the block a few times has figured out what's worked for him and what hasn't. The newer authors are still, you know, they're they're getting their feet underneath them. They're learning. But the the seasoned authors, they've got their channels. They know they've got a a, a village to send things to to get it looked over, um proofread, maybe a slight editing a little bit, but not like the big stuff. And then sent over to us. So, it's, you know, they, they want to clean it up. And, you know, for your prospective authors, that's something that is kind of a lost art anymore. It used to be when there was only the big five to send stuff to. If that thing wasn't clean as a, a operating room table, it wasn't going to get it was going to get thrown away. And you'd be amazed at some of the stuff that comes across my desk. I mean, it's freshman in high school English. <laughs> There's some things that it's pretty rough. Um, but that's not, that's not the, the majority of it. I mean, that's just your, your occasion, but the season authors, that's what they do. And it really stands out. It makes an editor take notice mm. and it makes them want to read it more when you're reading this thing. And let's say you you get through your a typical thing is three chapters. If it's not grabbing you by three chapters or 50 pages or, you know, however many words, if that's not grabbing you by then you're probably not going to continue. That's kind of the average. And if it's filled with grammatical errors and punctuation problems and uh, you know where I'm going with this, just all sorts of issues and things like that, and it makes it hard to read where I'm sitting there stumbling and bumbling through it, I'm now out of the story. I'm not paying as much attention to the story, and I'm paying more attention to the grammar and the problems that it has. And I'm sitting here running them through my head. Is this worth cleaning up? Because everything's going to need a little bit of cleaning up, but I'm, I have to look at, is this worth my time? Or do I need to send it back and say, you know what? Here's what I'm seeing so far. Why don't you clean this up and then resubmit it? Or if it's just too far gone or I don't have the time, then it's, you know, I'm thank you, but no thanks. Pat, you frozen? I think we got a, I think we got a frozen <laughs> Patty. Patty, there he is. <laughs> you, you did a Walt Disney on us. <laughs> did he get? 
Brennan, did he finish the question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he uh, did. Damn uh, it, so- I missed the ending. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's too bad. You'll have to you'll have to tune in and listen when it yeah, when that, it was, that was a good oh. ending. You really missed it. Oh, okay. Let it take over. Twist coming, honestly. <laughs> so, Ken, um, for longer manuscripts, novella and uh, novel length, do you uh, send feedback with pretty much all of them? I do. Uh, the only one I do not send feedback for everyone is going to be the short story submissions. There's just when we do an anthology, there's just too many submissions. You just can't possibly do it. Um, if there was something that was really, really close, then what I will do is I will send an attaboy and say, listen, you guys were close. You did really well. It didn't quite make the cut. Um, but I'd like to hear more. I'd like to see more. Do you have anything longer? Do you have anything different than I'm looking for? If so, then I'd like to, I'd like to see what else you've got out there. So I've done that. But as far as novella length and longer, I try to uh, – have I ever not given feedback? No, I've given feedback on every single one. I try to give feedback on exactly what it is that I'm seeing and why it's not working for me. Or if it is working for me, then you know I'll have longer conversations with the author and we go from there. Do you know how uh, – with a press about the size and um, with the output of Silver Shamrock, do you know about how common that is or no idea? How common to include feedback on all submissions uh, except short stories? Not common at all. Yeah. Uh, again, I was told I was an idiot for doing it because I'm setting <laughs> myself up for huge problems, possible disgruntled authors, bad stuff on social media. Uh, but to be honest, I've experienced the exact opposite. I've had so many grateful and enthusiastic authors to get a denial like that, a rejection like that, because it gives them some direction. It shows what it is that we're, what we like, what we may not like. And that's what I try to do in every single one. I try to tell them, listen, this is working for me, but this is not working for me. I don't try to just kick them in the teeth. I don't think that's right. That's not constructive. Um, I like to give them what it is. Hey, I, I like what you're doing here. I like what you're doing here. But unfortunately, this, this, and this is not working, and here's the reasons why. And I try to give, like, some examples and, you know, maybe some things for them to work on. Okay. Obviously, I'm speaking just for me, but I just I, – the, there's nothing more frustrating than getting a rejection and having absolutely no idea where to start with it. You know, is, is it the grammar? Is it the story? Is it – was it, you know – this close and um it just didn't quite make the final cut um having you know that 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 feedback is just invaluable um so i mean that i think that's awesome that you provide it yeah and you know what if i get the occasional disgruntled person so fine i'm fine with that listen i've got broad shoulders i can take a little heat i'm good with that but i come into this as an inexperienced writer and a fan and I'm with you when I've sent submissions and it just came back as just your boilerplate rejection letter. You have no idea. You have no idea. And it could very well simply be, we really liked your story. It just wasn't a good fit. Well, then tell me that. Yeah. Tell me that. You know, it's it, it makes it I'm with you. It makes it really frustrating for an author trying to find out what it is they're doing wrong. And 
I'm a firm believer. Look, if you're going to build this industry up, you have to give something so you can get a foundation set. And it can't be just, well, I'm sorry, but it didn't work. It's got to be more than that. I have submitted to uh, respected indie publishers, and I've gotten no email back. To the And there's been plenty of time, like months that passed on a short story. Not even like a standard, we passed. And it's to the point where, like, did I even, like, send the story? Wait, I did. Uh, I didn't get anything. And I, I know some of these people. I'm just thinking, like, what's the... That's that does not make me want to come back. Like, right. okay, I'm no name, but like, treat everyone the way that uh, I'm not kissing your ass, but the way that Ken McKinley would, because you're you take on a lot more. And I just think it's interesting that you are pretty much a one man squad, doing twice as much as people that have two or three people working for them. Well, and I think a lot of it again is stupidity on my part. I don't know what I don't know. I've never worked for a publishing firm. I've never been on that side of it. I don't know how they do it, what they do it right, how they do it wrong. I just know what I would want as an author, and I know as a business person what I need to make things work on our end, you know, on the the financial side or the business side or the marketing side. I know what it is that we need to make things work there. So that's what I try to to implement. But it's again, I, I'm sure it's it's different than what everybody else is doing because I've never been on that side of the the page. Now, to go where you were talking about where, you know, you haven't got much feedback and stuff like that and you don't know, you know, it's kind of like, is this mic on type of thing? Um, I will tell you, anybody that's listened to this, do yourself a favor. And if it's been a while since a publisher has, since you've sent something in and you haven't heard anything back from them, if it gets picked up somewhere else, please, for your sake, because we're going to blackball you if you don't. That makes us mad. <laughs> when I pick up a manuscript and it's, let's say it's been six months down the road, which is common. You know, we're typically right now six to nine months out reading manuscripts. That's just, we've got that much caseload. When I pick up a manuscript and I start reading it and I think, ooh, I kind of like this. This is going somewhere. I like the voice, you know, this type of thing. And I try to get a hold of the author, and then I find out, oh, well, that was, I self-published that a month ago, or someone else has picked it up. And they didn't have the common courtesy to let everybody else know that they submitted to, that it's now not available. That's that's very bad etiquette. That's that's poor. I can imagine that would leave a sour taste on your tongue. Uh, I have a list, people. I have a list. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it does. It does leave a sour taste in my mouth. Um, I try not to be bitter and take things personal. I can understand where, you know, maybe you just don't know what you don't know. And this is what you did. I try to be good about it. But yes, it's very frustrating because, again, I've got so many manuscripts screaming for my attention that when I waste however much reading time on something and to, only to find out that it's no longer available. Yeah, that's that's really frustrating. It, it doesn't make me want to do business with that person again whether it's whether it's unintentional or not it's you know if anyone's listening to this podcast take that note down if there's one thing in this whole podcast that you're going to learn please learn that yeah i mean it's definitely all about respect both ways um funny enough is i just happen to got uh i just happened to receive one of those from um someone that wanted us to apparently uh publish a short story and uh, i'm not a publisher 
So I just thought that uh, might be a fun fact for the night. <laughs> I, I think that ties in, though. I think that ties it, in. Cause, uh, it does. You know, I'm, not, I'm not going to name who or what it was, but they sent in a short story. I didn't get to it in enough time because I got a lot of shit that I got to take care of. And when I finally read it, there's a follow-up email that said, um, I'm withdrawing my short story. It's been published here. And I'm just thinking, hmm. I guess I'm a publisher now, so I might, <laughs> might as well try that. Look out, Ken. But, but I think it ties in because, and, and Ken, forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but I, I would assume that uh, something pretty common across all publishers is that desire to just kind of get across, read the submission guidelines. And if you read them and it, and it says you're submitting a book for review. We're not going to publish your story. <laughs> Don't well, submit a story. <laughs> before, before Ken jumps in, it is important, and I'm not making fun of this person because it's a common thing. And I probably, I probably did it way more than I realized when I started out. But they, there's very, we have a format. It's a, you read through it. The one of the last things is, is what format or formats are you offering for a review? Which is, and it says it's very specifically, like Moby file, paperback. Um, it covers other things. Since we cover movies too, they cover those as well. And um, wasn't answered, so I, uh, I initially asked, and they said, "Do you mean short story?" And again, I'm not making fun, but if you don't know things, typically I would suggest googling it or asking someone, not the person you're submitted to. And now that leads me to you, Ken. Is that is that something that you've come across, or is there certain things that you want to suggest? Um, definitely look at the guidelines. I've had I. I've got guidelines, the same guidelines on my website for submissions that I've had since I put the website up. They have not changed. I'm looking for the exact same things that I did a year ago. And to this day, I still get through those channels stuff that I'm not looking for. I find that there are some authors out there that try to use the whole throw it all against the wall and see if something sticks type of philosophy. Just submit everywhere and anywhere and it doesn't matter if it doesn't even come close to what they're looking for maybe you'll strike gold and that's that's a poor look again it makes you not want to do business with them because they're not paying attention i mean have some common courtesy don't waste their time so there is some of that but when i say some i'm talking very little it's just one occasionally here one occasionally there but that's it it's most people are pretty good about it um i think the biggest thing is people don't know what the process is for what's a what's a proper submission um here's my story you know with the cover letter and the cv um you know there's obviously the season ones do you can tell because when those come through i mean they're 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 perfect they're you can tell they've done it before and you know they've they've really done their homework and they know the ropes and i think that's what's really lacking right now is you know you've got these these this these new authors that are trying to be published for the first time and they've got great raw material, but they're just not polished in the way and not just in the the story application, but as in the submission application, it's, they don't know what they don't know. And I, I wish there was a little bit more information out there for, you know, the prospective first time author on the do's and don'ts, because Hmm. I think that would be, I think that'd be extremely helpful and not just for my press, but I mean, all the presses out there. Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned a CV. Now, I didn't know what that was when I started out. Can you just explain that? And you, we kind of are doing that a little bit. 
Um, hopefully these newer authors that are listening or will listen and think, hey, maybe I get a look into this a little bit more than uh, just blindly submitting. So the CV is, it just lists the information on their accomplishments, where all they've been published, what are, and another thing to submit in there, some do, some don't, but what I would always recommend, put all your social media contacts in there. Let me know if you're on Instagram, Twitter, all the Facebook, all that. Give that information to me. Here's the reason why. When I'm looking for a prospective author that I may or may not have heard of before, I want to know how hard is this person going to be to market? Let's say they, they have a story that's just wonderful, but they're absolute homebodies that don't like technology, don't have any social presence, social media presence whatsoever. That makes it hard for me because a lot of my marketing is through social media. That's where I, I, I do the lion's share of my social media, and it's worked really well for us. Maybe some others, it's not such a big deal, but for us, it definitely is. So listing that on your CV, that's that's key because that lets me know, hey, this person has this, this person has this. And I know that I can tag this and I can pick up the people that are following them. Maybe it will help them gain followers. And it's just it's just a big network. You're throwing a big net out there to try to catch as many fish as possible. And that's that's definitely needs to be on there. But also list your accomplishments. If you are a first time unpublished author, don't be apologetic about it. We all had to start somewhere. Just put on there. This is my first, you know, this is my first story. I'm hoping to get published. I've never been published before. Just be polite about it and, you know, own it. I mean, that's like I said, we all have to start somewhere. Yeah. Um, how about off to you, Brennan? Uh, yeah, I, I've got a follow up for that. So um, for as far as an introduction letter, um, what what do you get in those? What do you what do you want in those? What do you expect in those? And are they different for novels? Do you even ask for them with stories? So, yeah, I mean, the introduction letter. Um, let me know. Give me a brief, you know, uh, how many words do I typically ask for? You know, 500 to 1,000 words, let me know what this story is about. Give me just a, a brief synopsis. Give me a word count. Let me know if you have an agent. I mean, that's that's kind of the big thing outside of the stuff that I already mentioned. That's that's pretty much what I want to see. You give me that information, and I can do stuff with that. You know, it, it definitely helps out reading it to see what the synopsis is. Is this something that's going to be in my wheelhouse? You know, let me know the, the, the gist of it so I can, you know, I can make a decision on what you know what it say i'm looking for a certain story and i'm going through synopsis to see okay i'm looking for here we'll just throw it out there i'm looking for a vampire story boom 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 that's not one that's not one that's not one that's not one because i try to diversify our stuff a little bit so we're not putting out the same kind of stories all the time so i may be looking for a certain story that to to pick up and i go down through the synopsis to see what we have there you got to catch me hook me hook me on that synopsis be brief, but be descriptive and, you know, treat it like a, a short story or flash fiction where you're telling me what's going on, but hook me with it. Don't don't just drone on. Brian, do you want to uh, do a oh, follow? Yeah. Sorry, I forgot that uh, people listening can't see me nodding. Cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we, we also got a fair few questions and uh, some of them are really good follow ups for stuff we've already talked about from uh, Erica Robin, who is a fellow New Englander. Um, so one thing you talked about, uh, sending it off to be edited, then it goes to proofreaders. 
Um, and then when you get, you know, right into that home stretch and the digital and then the physical arcs go out, um, have you, do you receive feedback from reviewers and not necessarily in terms of reviews, but more like, you know, I caught this error, this, you know, this plot thing. Is that a common thing that happens? Um, with some of my reviewers, yes. So I've got some reviewers that I'm closer to than others. Others have just started reviewing our work and I may not have such a, a close working relationship with, but some of the ones that I have, yes, I've, I've gotten that where they've, they've come back and they said, Hey, this arc has, you know, on page da 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 da, this, Maybe either a plot hole or, you know, most of the time it's like a simple typo. Typical plot holes. We've already, we've, we've patched everything up. We've got it to where we want it to be. Um, it may be like a misspelled word here, a mispronunciation there. Um, things like that. It's, it's usually something really simple where it's just a matter of going in, click, click, and then putting it back out there to be ready to go for release. So you you also, you know, mentioned at various places that, you know, social media is kind of a big part of Silver Shamrock. Silver Shamrock's really active on social media, engaging authors, engaging readers, uh, engaging anybody who will engage with you, basically. Uh, what's your favorite social media platform for stuff like that? And do you have different go-tos for different needs? Um, I do. So to just BS back and forth... Probably Twitter. Twitter's quick. It's simple. It's easy. Um, for me, and you know, every, again, everybody's mileage may vary, but for me, uh, I don't have as many trolls on Twitter as I do Facebook. <laughs> um, Facebook, I can do a little bit more with. The, the only thing that's like kind of frustrating on Twitter is the whole you can't post more than you know. Like if I'm trying to do like a description of something. Or I'm trying to put a list of all the authors for an anthology on there. I have to use page after page after page after page to do that. On Facebook, I don't. On Instagram, I don't. So, you know, there's there's pros and cons of everything. But just to BS with with uh, authors and things like that, Twitter, I love doing that. Um, Facebook is kind of the all-purpose go-to for where you start things off and then get it uh, sent out to different uh, horror author groups. Anybody that's looking for horror fiction, that type of thing, I'm, I'm plugged into a probably 25 different groups on Facebook where I, I post stuff on there. And then if you, the thing that's really surprised me the most is how much I like Instagram. And what I mean by that is all these bookstagrammers, man, these people are talented. <laughs> I cannot believe some of the things they do. So they'll get like an arc of ours and they will like make these gorgeous pictures that look like something that should be in a magazine. I'm like, wow, I wish I was that talented. So, yeah, I mean, there's and Instagram's got a very, very nice and rabid following. So you can you can definitely pick up things on Instagram. So I got more on social media, but uh, why don't you do a real quick plug and let people know where they can find you on each one? Ooh, OK, so um, <laughs> you're not prepared for this. Come on. <laughs> oh, I'm prepared for this. <laughs> All right, so on Twitter, it is shamrock underscore silver, and we are silver shamrock, not shamrock silver, as we've been misquoted a couple of times. But not um, on this <laughs> No, not on this channel. You guys are way on top of it, Laurel Hightower. So, yes, um, 
silver underscore or I'm sorry, shamrock underscore silver at Twitter. And then Silver Shamrock Publishing on Facebook as well as Instagram. So um what are your thoughts? And I think I know where you're going with this, but what are your thoughts on the publisher uh being tagged on Twitter posts, reviews, bookstagram posts? Mm, I don't have a problem with it. I think the horror community is a little bit something special. We have such a, you know, we're, we're small. We're not the thrillers. We're not the romance. We're not mystery. Uh, those have a, a much broader base of readership. Horrors, we're our own redheaded stepchild. We, we are our own thing and we're proud of it, baby. And it's one of these things where we're close knit. So I don't mind being tagged. It doesn't bother me. Um, the more tags, the better. I'm a firm believer that there's no such thing as bad publicity, although others may argue on that. But to get your name out there, it's, you know, it's, I'm happy to see it. Now, the other side of that that I'm, I'm going with is a lot of the horror publishers are small presses. So it's one or two guys or females that are working it. And it's, it's one of these things where you, when you say, like for us, you say Silver Shamrock, I mean, you're talking to me. You may be talking to Ken Kane a little bit, but you're talking to me. And a lot of people know that. So when they post it, it's almost like they're posting it on my personal. So it really doesn't bother me. I'm perfectly fine with it. What about on negative stuff? I mean, it's it, let, let's put it out there. It's it's bad etiquette. Um, I don't do that. And we'll also be clear and say this question is not from Erica. She does not <laughs> want to know if she can slander your books and, uh, you know, tag you in them. But uh, what <laughs> Have you been tagged in, you know, kind of gross, scathing reviews? And what are your feelings on that? Um, knock on wood, I haven't had anything that has that has uh, made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Luckily, again, I'm new. My day's coming. I'm sure there's going to be some horse's ass out there that's just going to have a beef with us for whatever reason, and it's going to happen. Okay, it happens to everybody. That's fine. Listen, this is a free country. I'm not going to try to censor anyone. If that's what they truly feel, that's fine. Um, just know that you're going to shoot one over my bow. It may come back to get you, baby. So um, I'm going to be as professional about it as I can. But I, you know, listen, I'm not one to sit back idly and let someone beat the living crap out of me, um, especially if it's not deserved. But at the same time, I'm also if I make a mistake, I'll own it. I have no problem saying, look, I screwed up, I did this wrong, maybe I should have done this. I'm fine with that. Um, I, I can own it. I, I'm perfectly fine with that. Vaguely re related to uh, social media, although kind of a sidestep, uh, Erica would also like to know where you drew the inspiration for It's 5 O'Clock Somewhere Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jimmy Buffett kind of came to mind. Um, it was just one of those days where I'm like, we always – you know, my day job, we're always joking sometimes after a rough day where it's like, is it too early to drink yet? Is it too early to drink yet? Is it too early to drink yet? And, you know, the the answer is, hey, it's five o'clock somewhere. So that's where it came from. Um, obviously, Jimmy Buffett's where I heard it from a long time ago. But yeah, five o'clock somewhere Fridays, that's it's kind of a it just kind of popped into my head and I just ran with it. Yeah. And Erica's got one more for you. She listened to the initial launch episode that we had with you, um, and she 
uh, she took away your comment about building relationships with a publisher. Um, you talked a little bit about forming them and how to approach people at conventions and, mm-hmm. you know, just stuff like that. So she was wondering, is there, are there any other key things that you wish people would keep in mind when approaching somebody from a publishing company? So I said in the last, the public, uh, last podcast we had where don't, don't immediately try to go in as a salesperson. That doesn't work. Treat them like people because they are. Treat them like how you'd want to be treated. Um, ask questions. Don't try to sell stuff, but ask questions. Gather information. Make it a, a, a information gathering type of session. If it's one thing that I've learned in sales is people like to talk about themselves. So if you go to someone that you're interested in publishing with, ask questions. And there is no wrong question. Just ask questions. Learn about them. Figure them out. Speaking of questions, uh, <laughs> try not to laugh when I say this. Speaking of questions, Patrick R. McDonough has one. Uh, oh. Did you really choose Kenneth McCain because you two share the same name? And do you two ever confuse your names with each other's? <laughs> Before you answer that, I have a question. Did you have to write that down to remember it? <laughs> <laughs> did you not see him? He was reading off of something. I know. That's no, funny. I was looking. <laughs> No, it, 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 you know, coincidence, nothing but coincidence. Like, I don't know a ton of people with my same name. So to bounce into one like that and have it work like that and it be Kenneth as well as mine, I mean, it was <laughs> pure coincidence. Now, I have had definite people that have been like, oh, uh, Ken McKinley, he's the one that owns Silver Shamrock. No, his name's Kenneth Kane. You know, they confuse us. That gets <laughs> That happens a lot. <laughs> And my my answer is I'm the good looking one. Kenneth's the ugly one. So he's <laughs> sorry, Kenneth. I had to throw that out there. People often confuse my name with Brennan. I get it. It's <sighs> a misconception. Um, so speaking of which, why Keelan Patrick Burke for your graphic designer? You know, before I even thought about getting into publishing, I saw some early covers of his. And not even knowing that it was Keelan. You know, I knew Keelan as an author, not as a a graphics design guy. And the first few times I saw some of his covers, I thought, man, these are kick-ass covers. Who does these? Mm. And I started digging in. And it got to the point where you could almost recognize a cover that was Keelan's. I mean, he just has that certain something. You look at it and you go, yep, that's a Keelan. And it's getting more and more because you're starting to see, you know, more and more of his work out there. And not just on Silver Shamrock, but he's he's piling it up pretty good. I mean, he's he's done Bentley Little's covers. He's done quite a few covers out there. So I mean, he's really getting the stuff out there. And there's just something about those covers that speak to me. They, in my opinion, he knows how to do a horror cover. He can make a cover look like a horror book. Mm. And that's kind of always been my bitch about some of the the stuff from the big five and all that where you'll get a, you'll see a cover and you'll be looking at it and it's like all these abstract colors and swirls and you know, there's really nothing to it. And you're like, uh, what the fuck is this? Is this a mystery? Is this a horror? Is this a romance? I don't even know what this is. If, you know, if you can't tell by the title, like, you know, going for the jugular or something like that, I don't know how you would know because the cover does, does not scream horror. And that burns me. Yeah, no, for sure. Do you think that um, 
that might be, and obviously it's speculation on all three of our parts, but do you think it's more so to do with the fact that horror is just weird for bigger companies? I th- hey, you're on mute. Was you I on mute the whole time? Yeah, you're, on, you're on mute for half of it. Repeat that. <laughs> uh, do you think that it comes down to that they um, either don't know for some reason or that they just uh, are trying to appease people and I don't know how it's the word, for lack of a better phrase, trick people into buying horror? Um, I think you're probably on more than what you realize. So with the Big Five, what happens is horror, again, is they don't know what to do with horror. They really don't. They're, the people that are the editors for these big five, they're not horror fans. They don't, they're, they're a little highbrow sometimes, but they're, they're definitely not horror fans. So they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to market it. They, they treat it like it's going to give you a bad taste in your mouth. And I don't know if you remember in the nineties, nineties are an era that really like burned my biscuits because in the eighties, Everybody was into horror. It was on your sleeve. 80s were a great time for horror. 90s came about, and all of a sudden, horror became a dirty word. Now it's a dark thriller. Now it's, you know, dark fiction. It's not, you know, this is the first time I ever heard dark fiction instead of horror. And they don't want to use the name horror. Mm. And it's, it's really too bad. And I think that is also reflective in their covers because. Ooh, icky cover. Ooh, scary cover. I don't want to. No, 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 no. That is what drew us as teenagers. I was a teenager in the 80s. That's what drew me to looking at like these shelves at the, whether it be the bookstore or, you know, I had a, um, other place, like a grocery store that had, you know, certain covers and stuff there. And that's, you know, you're sitting there looking through a sea of trade paperbacks. We're not trade paperbacks, but like mass market paperbacks. And, you go, ooh, this one looks interesting. And that was like, okay, I'll give you a perfect example. Brian Lumley, Necroscope. <laughs> if you ever look there, no, 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 that's not the cover. That's that's the, that, no, no, that's not the original cover. You should, you need to get the original cover. That one's the cool one. It shows, oh, Brennan's, Brennan's digging. Look, at, here he goes. So for anyone that's just listened to the audio show, obviously you can't see it. I got one version. That's it. There, Brennan's got the original one. That's the one. Imagine, imagine that. Real quick, sorry. Describe that to people that are just listening to audio. Brennan, here, take it. Describe what you're seeing right there. Uh, front of a skull with vampire teeth and the pointiest, grossest looking tongue you can imagine. Dude, that cover. I can't tell you. Nice cover. That cover is absolutely amazing. That thing. I when I saw that at a bookstore, I couldn't grab it fast enough. It was like crack to a an addict. I had to jump on that thing. And the beautiful thing about it is that book is as good as its cover. Now we all know a lot of the '80s stuff. <laughs> they spent more on the covers than they did with editing and you know all that kind of jazz. But no, that that's a horror cover. And that's what I want to see with stuff like that. I want to see when people look at a Silver Shamrock cover, they go, Oh yeah, that's horror. There's no mistake. I I mean, I don't I guess it goes with, you know, the whole luck of the Irish thing. We're three Irish Americans. You you've got a Irish uh, a guy from Ireland um working on your graphic novels. 
working on your covers. Yeah, I don't know I where graphic novels came from. And then Kenneth Kane, isn't he Irish too? Uh, you know, I think he is. <laughs> so I'm just saying, luck of the Irish does apply in this sense. Um, I didn't even didn't even pay attention to that. All right, cool. Well, you're smarter than you realize, young man. <laughs> Brandon, why, Brandon, why don't you take it away for a little while? Sure, I've got a question that's not related to anything we're talking about. Um, so how did you 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 kind of have a one to two release a month sweet spot for the most part? Um, how did you kind of come across that? Decide on that? It kind of fell into its own and what i mean by that is it was about the rate that we're accepting editing getting covers made and things like that and and honestly the biggest thing is the promotion anything less than that and it's almost like you're you're shoving one book down someone's throat over and over and over and it's almost too much but anything more than that and it's i don't feel like i'm given enough attention to someone's book to promote it like I, I really should. So yeah, it's it's kind of been a sweet spot, one to two a month. So are you looking to just kind of keep that up? And if it happens, it happens. You know, kind of the way it fell in in the first place. Would you like to eventually ramp that up? You know, four books a month, five books a month, six books a month. If I could keep, <laughs> if I could keep the the quality up and things don't start sliding through the cracks, then sure, I have no problem expanding. My biggest concern is I want to make sure that I'm putting out the product that I can be proud of and to have our name and stuff on it. And that's that's not glossing things over and, and blowing sunshine up someone's butt trying to self-promote. That's, that's how I look at things. I want it to be where when I'm old and even when I'm dust and gone, I want to have a legacy left behind where I put out some kick-ass horror. And hopefully... We've hit a few home runs, you know, um, but I want to make sure that the quality and stuff stays off. I don't want the editing to slack. I don't want the covers to slack. I don't want it to – I don't want the sales to slack. That's the biggest thing. Listen, these these authors deserve the very best, and if I can't give it to them in having that translate to sales, then I'm not doing my job right. Actually, I got a question that applies to that. Um, I'm super curious. I've never actually thought to ask this question. Mass market paperbacks – um, how does that work? Do you have any idea with like an indie press? Uh, is it just too much money to hook up with a mass market company to sell your product? Just focusing on America right now, because I know it's a whole nother ball game internationally. But for just America, um, for mass market distributors, I guess would be the right term. Um. How would an independent press such as yourself hook up with them? Because I love to uh, use bookstores because I, I know a lot of authors now. I like to look around and see names that I'm familiar with. And there was a couple uh, that I found earlier this week uh, when I went shopping. And it was Bentley Little. It's my first time getting one of his. And it was The Town. And a Tim Levin book called um, It's One or the Other, Dusk or Dawn. It was the first one of the two. Okay. Um, and I just thought that was the coolest thing. So I'm just curious, is there ever a possibility that we could see Silver Shamrock in Books a Million or Target or, or a grocery store chain? Um, 
Possibly. Now, you you, believe, you don't know this, but you've kind of asked a two-part question. So I'm going to go with the first part first. Okay. And that's going to be the – I one of the things you were kind of asking but didn't quite get there was why trade paperback size and not mass market paperback size. Yep. Okay, so that's part of it. Um, the industry itself has shifted towards trade paperback size. And I think a lot of it, believe it or not, is – they want a little bit bigger in their hands to make it easier to read, okay? Because a lot of times these trade paperbacks are not purchased at the bookstore. They're purchased from Amazon. They're purchased online, um, even conventions, things like that. They're typically not purchased at a lot of bookstores. Mm. The trade paperbacks, or I'm sorry, the, the mass market paperbacks, those were a certain size to make it so you could fit into those the paperback slots, and cram as many on a shelf when you had shelves everywhere. There you go. Exactly. Brandon was just showing his. Brandon was copy. just showing Necroscope. Love yeah. it. Necroscope, Necroscope. I, I don't know how to say it, but that's the book. No. Um, but yeah, you don't have those avenues anymore. So the, the whole industry as a whole has shifted towards trade paperback size. Mm. Now I could release every single one of ours as a mass, ma- mass market paperback size if I wanted to. That's an option I have. I have just. Went with what the industry's been using, and you know it's they've used it for the last decade. And anybody that's collecting those books, um, that's the size that they're putting on their shelves. And I don't want to mess that up by having ours be a goofy size compared to what they have. So yeah, I mean, I, listen, I've got a million mass market paperbacks. You guys saw my shelves. I've got a ton of them. Um, I love them. So yeah, I've got a soft spot for them. But that's that's why that now. As far as getting on, you know, your books a million and all the type of stuff, those shelves out there, uh, we have the ability to. The problem is getting the shelf space for horror is literally Stephen King, Dean Koontz, maybe Dan Rice. Oh, we're out of space. And that's the way it works. You get a, you get a few of those, and that's really all you got. If you can get on those shelves, you're doing really well. Um, sometimes it's a matter of knowing the right people and getting on maybe one shelf or something like that. But to get your stuff through a whole chain, that's really hard to do. We have, we have the ability. It's just someone has to choose our book to do that. Yeah. Cause I, um, I went to books. I don't prefer going to that store. I think they're, uh, overpriced and they kind of just, it's all these big names, which is fine for other people. But, I mean, indie horror, once you get into it, man, yeah, that's all I want to read right now, and it's probably I'm never going to change. So I don't even see Brian Keane or Mary San Giovanni in Books a Million. I saw nope. one Richard Chismar because he wrote a book with Stephen King. Right. I don't even see Jack Ketchum. I don't see Joyce Carol Oates. Um, uh, I see Shirley Jackson, but it's just – it's it's a shame. Um and I'm looking uh, Richard uh, Richard Lehman. I didn't even see one of his books. And, yeah, and, you and there's won't. not there's not even a horror section. Just just let me bitch about this for one more second. <laughs> Go ahead. So, I'll bitch with you. So I went to a I went to a big where I live. There's a Amish markets, farmer markets, and um, I saw there's a used book section. Obviously, I'm gonna go I'm there. Gonna but, stop you, I'm gonna stop you right there. Go uh, for it. Horror, horror is not big in the Amish community. I just, I don't know if you're aware of that. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> I, there was no 
horror section they just had Anne Rice and Stephen King. But um, that's really all I was going with that. But there is a weird subgenre, not really the horror, that I found after I went to um, uh, Amish Country in PA. And it's this like Amish subgenre. I don't know if it's romance or whatnot. Have you seen this? It's I don't know what the genre is, but it's just women dressed like Amish girls. And I'm pretty sure I'm sorry if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's like all white chicks on book covers. And it's I I don't know what they're trying to sell, but that's uh, a little weird for me. That's that's a new one. I can't say that I've come across a lot of Amish fiction. Um, <laughs> do do me a might, favor. The next might time, be Mennonite. I don't know. It, oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> don't know. Oh, wow, I, I'm very familiar with the Mennonite fiction section. No, although uh, I don't think they'll listen to a podcast. So. I have no idea. <laughs> um, do me a favor. The next time you go to this place and you get to the section. Um, just so I know you're not hallucinating, take a picture of that. I want send me a pic of that. I gotta see that. I'll send it to the both of you and I'll put it on Twitter and say, uh, "Does anyone know what the fuck this is?" Because yeah. Amish fiction, nice. Uh, might want to be signed up for that. So let's talk about because this episode comes out a few. Uh, let's see, today is Tuesday. This episode will be released six days after we record it. So I think that's plenty of time to talk about this. Midnight in the Pentagram. What can we know about it besides the table of contents? When is it going to come out? <laughs> Midnight the Pentagram. Um, it is slated for late August, early September release. We haven't nailed down the exact release date yet, but because we're trying to jockey it in between some other stuff. So COVID messed a few things up. Um, we Sales... We're going like gangbusters. COVID hit, and at first, sales went through the roof. Everybody was staying home and buying books. Then as COVID kept going along and people weren't getting paychecks, next thing you know, that kind of dried up. So what I did is I made the old executive decision to start pushing some release dates back because I wanted to let people heal up a little bit, and I, I wanted to promote a little bit harder and a little bit lengthier to try to get as much out there. So I pushed some stuff back. Everybody was really good about it, but that's kind of pushed some of our, our release dates back. So um, as of right now, the, the tentative release date for Midnight in the Pentagrams going to be late August to early September. That makes sense. Uh, I think it was Brennan that pointed out to me. Sorry for throwing you under the bus if that's the case, but with uh, the novella with Wesley Southerd and Summer Canyon, I thought that was supposed to come out already, but I, I get why it isn't now. Yeah, that's that's exactly the reason why. We wanted to spend a little bit more time on it, so now we pushed it back to August 4th. I'm looking towards that, man. I haven't read... Uh, I've read one thing from Summer. She submitted something to us for Women in uh, Horror Month, Um and I'm looking towards reading more by her, and I've never read Wesley Southern, but I've heard nothing but good things. Yeah, I here's the thing. That story that they've got, it's so unique and so cool, but yet has kind of a, a familiar feel to it. Mm. Um, it's such a cool premise. It's When they, they submitted it to me, you know, obviously they're on my radar. I've, I've published Summer before. I've read Wesley. I've met him at StokerCon. Um, so I had a little bit there for it so 
when it came through my my inbox, I was like, ooh, what do we got here? And the synopsis of it, I, when he gave that to me, I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> so I was excited to read it. And when I read it, I thought, wow. Now, here's the thing. I've read most of Wesley's stuff. And this one, with him and Summer, I don't know how they did it, but the, the writing's really, really good. He's He was good before, but this one's it's like more polished, like mm. more mature. He's... He's real. They've really. I don't want to say he because it's not just him. It's Summer too. And maybe that was a thing. Maybe he needed a little bit of that. But I'd like to think that both of them brought their A game to this and just kicked the living shit out of it. It's it's really good. I think you'll like it. Oh, okay. And then just one more thing. Um, kind of going off of the point of how it's a little bit different. Um, so Brennan and I recently just talked with John Horner Jacobs, and he had a really interesting thing that I never thought about before for uh, kind of a pointer for other writers. He said basically um, kind of make sure I'm not fucking up too much here, Brennan, but he said that they're looking for 70% familiar, 30% different. That's kind of the ratio for what your fiction should be. How, it, Brennan, before I continue, is that – think that's right okay so if, if, I'm if wrong, it's not right it's close all right so l- let's just give myself 10 percent um high or low or whatever uh is that something that you would say is how you believe to approach fiction when you're selling um to a publisher as a newer name mm. I think it's all about when you're a newer name, you have to set yourself apart. And how you're going to do that is polishing your stuff. And it's going to be making sure that your submission is exactly what's in their wheelhouse. What are they looking for? So most of the the small presses that I've seen with their open submissions, and us included, we have our tropes that we're looking for. You know, you've got some that, that specialize in certain things, like, say, creature feature. There's a, a press out there that specializes in creature feature. Some are on Bizarro. Some are on, you know, what have you. Whatever it is, make sure you're in their wheelhouse. If they're looking for Bizarro, don't send them some, you know, straight mainstream type horror zombie or something like that. It's not going to get, it's not going to get picked up. So make sure you're in their wheelhouse. The next thing is, you gotta hook them. Um, for me, I've gotta, I gotta be hooked. I don't, if I'm 50 pages in and I'm not hooked, I'm done. And when you get these presses in there that are, are, they're getting a ton of manuscripts that they gotta look through and they don't have, they're not being hooked right off the bat. Maybe you got a slow burn and a slow burn's fine, but you gotta hook them. And if you're not hooking them, they're, they're, tossing your thing aside and there comes your rejection letter so make sure you're in their wheelhouse hook them right off the bat make sure it's clean and you got your chops all right that's uh that's perfect uh brennan back to you sir so with with uh tropes in mind now i I know we've talked at length about how you're well you said you're looking to get hooked but you're also just looking for a really good story um Recently, you published uh, A Stranger's Guide, which is really closer to the realm of urban fantasy, dark fantasy, whatever have you, than straight-up horror. Uh, is there 
any other kind of trope or subgenre that you would like to kind of try and look for or explore, or is it just whatever strikes you, strikes you? Um, I'm going to go with option B, that whatever strikes me, strikes me, but I try to keep my mind open. I, I try not to. So, okay, right now what's really hot and what everybody's doing is coming-of-age horror. Now, listen, I love coming-of-age horror. I've published a ton of it. Um, I read a ton of it. It's it's probably my favorite, too. But it's I don't want to say it's getting overdone because I, I, I still really enjoy reading it. it. It isn't to the zombie level yet where I don't enjoy it. I, I still <laughs> enjoy it. But... It's it's a well worn out trope. It's 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 getting it's getting some mileage and stuff on there. Now, with that being said, if I feel like I'm starting to get too much into one genre or one subgenre, then I will look for give me something different and I'll start going through my submissions and stuff to see what I've got. And with a stranger's guide, um I picked it up, I read the synopsis, and I thought, hmm. The first thing I thought of right away was Clive Barker. And I thought, you know, I kind of am digging this. So I started reading more. And Charlotte's got just like a, a, a good voice. It's There's definitely the, the Clive Barker influences, but she's not a copycat. This girl, she's got her own voice, it being set in Glasgow and using the the whole area of glasgow was unique um there was enough to it that just it just kept setting itself apart there was so many things in there i'm like i hadn't seen it done quite like that before so that really spoke to me and that's what it's going to boil down to i need something to speak to me she has a smooth way of delivery a very good voice and that's that's the key she hooked me she had a good voice she had something that stood out it was what i was looking for at that time and uh, isn't she from Scotland, too? So that's kind of – is she from Glasgow? Is no. That- well, she lived in Glasgow for a little bit. No, she is actually from the absolute northern coast of Scotland. Okay. So, like, as far north as you can get without getting your toes wet. <laughs> All right. So I think, needless to say, that alone would probably give her a lot of a advantage when it comes to unique voice. And she's probably pulling – it's um. It seems like there's some mythological features to it. There is. There's definitely um, some like urban legend type stuff from Glasgow, which to me was cool because it's not the the Bigfoot, it's not the you know the, all the urban legends and stuff you hear around here, the Candyman kind of stuff or things like that. It wasn't anything like that. It was something completely different, and that's what attracted me to it. It was different, but yet it was identifiable because sometimes. You can be too different. It can be hmm. so far out. Like uh, I'm just, I'm just not feeling it. It's just not flowing. It's just not grabbing me, because it's so far out. And you know, that's I have a hard time with Bizarro. And for people that like Bizarro fiction, that's that's fine. But for me, it's hard for me to do the whole uh, suspension of disbelief. I just when I'm reading Bizarro, I'm like, mm, no, I I can't buy into it. And that's for me as a reader, that makes it hard. So. You know, when I'm I'm looking for stories, I'm looking for something that speaks to me. That makes sense. Um, yeah, Brennan, if you if you got some more questions or yeah, any- so I mean, kind of piggybacking off that, when you're reading submissions, do you have kind of a wall you hit as far as 
either language or content or sex is concerned. So I'll give you a case in point. There was a story that I read that was going along and everything was great. And then all of a sudden there was like a, a drawn out sex scene that went for page after page after page after page after page. And it just stood out like a sore thumb. It's not that it was bad or that it made me, you know, like it made me uncomfortable or anything like that. It wasn't anything like that. I was fine with it. The problem was it didn't fit the story. So I told the author, look, what you need to do is you need to scale this back. And here's the reason why. Don't make it so stretched out and graphic because it doesn't match up with the story. Mm. And I'm fine with graphic, but like I said, you know, 10 pages of it, you're, you're, you're almost making your reader numb. It's kind of like, when I see uh, a story where someone's just painting the room with red, you know, I, listen, I love a good crafty murder and slasher scene as good as anyone else, but fiction, fiction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I didn't know I had to clarify that. Um, no, I, I like the red stuff as much as anyone else, but it's gotta, it's gotta make sense. And, Make it so it's it's horrific. And what I mean by that is not just sit there and paint the room red for page after page after page. Give me a character that I care about that I don't want to see get that sharp object impaled in them. That is what I want to see. It doesn't if you introduce a character and then a hundred words later you you off that character, I didn't invest in that character. I could care less whether that person's dead or not. And that doesn't that's not horror for me. That's just you're just painting the room red. Uh, the Girl Next Door, for me, because that's the most extreme story I've ever read, um, that yeah. it, it went into super graphic details, but it was so so damn fast with everything. It, it didn't seem to glorify anything. It was just brutal and ugly, and that's what I think the point was. For me, if you're doing graphic car scenes that's what should be focusing on and never glorify the goddamn killer because uh that's that's been done to death in the the whole like sorry for going on a rant but like if you're gonna have i love slashers i think we've seen enough shitty ones um i'm a big fan of the ones in the 80s um particularly michael myers try something new let's let's focus on uh few different angles besides blood and guts and I'm for that but same for you like make it make it count yeah and I'm I'm kind of less is more sometimes mm. you know it's it's one of those things where listen I'm all I'm fine with a brutal graphic murder but don't give me 52 of them <laughs> um give me a cast of characters that you've built them up and I care about them or I don't, I don't even have to necessarily care about them all the time. I mean, obviously, I think that's what makes it the most impactful, but I want to at least be able to identify them. There's been plenty of them that I may not like, but I can identify them, and that's a good character. If I can sit there and go, yeah, I know a person like that, or hey, I can see that, that's a good character. Do your character development, and once you do that, sure, get creative with the way to off them. That's fine, too. And that's going to be more impactful. But again, if it's going to be a slasher where you're just literally introducing them to take them out a hundred words later, there's no impact there. It just doesn't do anything. Now, the girl next door, that thing is like a surprise punch to the solar plexus when you didn't see it coming. You can't breathe. That 
oh my god, that book, that book's amazing. And what's crazy about that book is the fact of when it came out. Yeah, eighty eighty nine. No, earlier than that. That book came out like early to mid eighties. Oh wow! It was the first of its kind like that, and it was, you know, it was, you know, people read that and they, oh my god, this is trash. This is horrible. You know, because it it was so. It created such a, a a reaction to people. They everybody reacted to it. There there was no way you could read that book and not react. And Ketchum did such an amazing job with that. All right, Ken. Uh, so I know that you got some announcements that you are just dying to release am, on the show. I am dying. Okay. So from Silver Shamrock Publishing, upcoming. The next one's going to be Asher Ellis's Curse of the Pigman, and that's going to be released on 721. I'm dying for this one. I really am. This one's this one's fun. This one's your urban legend, not the one I didn't really know the the Pigman urban legend, but I guess it's 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 popular in Vermont. Um, wait, wait, wait. It, you're not going to not tell us, right? I feel like you're going to no, skip past I'm not, that. I'm not going to tell you. No. What's the no, urban it, legend? <laughs> it's 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 like a cult thing where they have to sacrifice stuff to keep the pigman from coming in and destroying things. Okay. So now the, the actual urban legend, um, Google it. It's, you're going to get a better description of it from that than you are from me. But, uh, Asher, he does such a great job with this book. I was, you know, I'd read Asher's first book he ever published. And it was one of those ones where you're like, okay, this is a, a first time author. And, you could tell that it was, but you could also tell there was a ton of potential there. It was just one of those ones where like, all right, this wasn't the smoothest, but man, there's some there's some definite bones in this story. So I, I really liked it, and I kind of you know, put that nugget in the back of my head. Now, this was a handful of years ago when I read this, but I, I put it in my head just to keep an eye out for his other stuff. And he released a couple of other things that I haven't read yet. But when he submitted this one, I thought, oh, yeah, I remember this guy. I, I want to read this. I want to see what this is all about. And when that came in, I was like, ooh, I like this. So, yeah, he does urban legend slash cult done right. I like the cover. Yeah, it's <laughs> Keelan knocked it out of the park. It was a great cover. Uh, Kenneth Kane did a very good show. <laughs> I can't say that with a laughing. <laughs> I'm <laughs> in the nuts. All right. So after Asher's, we've got uh, – Slave to the Grab Slave to Gravity by Summer Cannon and Wesley Southard. And that's coming out on August fourth. Uh we just talked about that here in this podcast about all the goodies and stuff on that. So keep an eye out for that. That one's like I said, that one's gonna be different. You're gonna you're gonna enjoy the take and stuff they have on that. After that, we've got the Milan Witch by Catherine Cavendish. This is another author from good old England that I've been doing a lot of authors from UK. Um for whatever reason, I, I'm big over there. No, uh, for some reason, they I'm getting a lot of submissions and stuff. So, um, Catherine, I've been a big fan of hers since she was in um, uh, Samhain Publishing. I read a few of her books and stuff when she was in Samhain when they were still around. So, I really enjoy that. But, yeah, she it's just, it's it's a witch, witch story done right. She just came out with a book through Flame Tree Press, too, didn't she, this year? Did. So, her, so right now, she's on contract, from what I understand, She's on contract with Flame Tree for all her novels, but any novellas she can shop around, and um, we were lucky enough to land one. So she's so, got yeah. Don Dario, 
And she's got Kenneth Keen as her editors. She does. Oh, I'm very envious of her. Yeah, that, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that comes out on August 18th, so fired up about that. So those are the, the three coming around the corner. Um, I've got a ton of them coming down the pike. How many more do you want me to rattle off? How about three more? Three more. Okay. Um, coming in September, we've got uh, The Body Will Follow by Rob E. Boley. He's an Ohio guy. That I read a short story of his probably five years ago. That another one, it was it kind of like stuck inside my head. It was like, ooh, I like this guy. And then when he submitted um, submitted a, a manuscript, it really made me take notice. So he's got one that's coming out in September. We've got another collaboration called Coffin Shadows by Mark Steensland and Glenn Krish. Ooh. Yeah, that one's that one's gonna be good. And anybody that knows those names, um, Glenn's Glenn's kind of an uns, uh, he's kind of under the radar a little bit. He's he's got such a really smooth delivery. If you haven't picked up any Glenn Krish, you really need to. I have not read a bad Glenn Krish whatsoever. And Mark Steensland, I mean, anybody that knows anything about Silver Shamrock, he was the collaboration that we did first, our first book right out of the gate with him and James Newman. So I, th- I think. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that L uh, Turpit. I'm pretty sure she was one of the first to do a review for that. I know she did it for Midnight, your first Midnight. Mm-hmm. I think she did it for that one as well too. I could be way off base, and it might not have been L, but I know one of my teammate, one of my <laughs> team members did it, and uh, I've heard nothing overall. I've heard nothing but good things about it, man. That you got, you guys have like. Seriously, had you and the uh, other two Ks have knocked it out of the park. Yeah, I'm I'm totally ecstatic with with what we've been able to do. I've been more lucky than good. It's, it, you know, again, you surround yourself with good people, good things are going to happen, and that's what I feel like I've done. It's just there's so many great people in the horror industry, and it's just, you know, just just do it. It's it's really worked out well, so I'm ecstatic. So yeah, that comes out in September as well, and then the last one I want to throw. Shouts out to is going to be the Essential Six stuff by Ronald Kelly. Mm. Now, yeah, I saw that cover too. That was pretty cool looking. Yeah, now that one's not a Keelan. That was one that Ronald had done with his author. So it's it's one of those ones where he comes with this package deal and said, "Hey, I've got all of my short stories, every single one, and I'm going to write some new ones for this." Are you interested? And I was like, are you kidding me? Yes. <laughs> so that was a done deal. I, I I love Ronald Kelly. The guy, that's another one that's that's under the radar. This guy's he writes to me like a like a southern Stephen King, like a Robert McCammon kind of deal. He's just he's really good. He's got kind of just a little bit of folksiness to him. Mm. Like that Tennessee down homeness. Like glass. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unlike, unlike us fucking Yankees and us two New England well, kids, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, kind of like the small town from Dixie kind of thing. Mm. So it's, you know, you feel like when you're reading one of his, he's gonna ask you to come up on the porch and sit in the rocker and drink some sweet tea type of thing. If it's spiked, I'll drink all that shit. <laughs> <laughs> now, he was in a graveyard. Was is he in Pentagram as well? I can't remember. He is not. He's not in Pentagram. Um, he, I invited him 
but he he had some writing stuff going on and he didn't have the time to be able to do it and he you know i'm hoping to he's he's already committed that he would love to get into the future midnight so i'm hoping to to see his name plastered all over the place i love the guy the guy is just a, a gem i i really enjoy his writing perfect segue ken to uh midnight are we uh I was under the impression from uh, Kenneth McKinley that we could talk about that. We can. So, I believe what Patrick is referring to is he would like an exclusive. Is this true? It is true. Look at him grinning. He's he's grinning. He's got the (laughs) three-mile smile. That's awesome. Okay. So, for those that aren't quite familiar or maybe slightly familiar... The first anthology we came out with was Midnight in the Graveyard, and it was a ghost story anthology where the the key writer in that was Robert McCammon. I was so fortunate to be able to get his story, and then everything else kind of fell into place. Love the TOC on that. Just completely honored at the the people that that jumped into that. That was that was amazing. So I had this idea when I first started Silver Shamrock that I wanted a flagship anthology series. And what I mean by that is everything's going to revolve around Midnight. So Midnight in the Graveyard is going to be a repeated ghost story anthology where we're going to do Midnight in the Graveyard 2, 3, 4, kind of like how Charles L. Grant did Shadows, Shadows 2, 3, 4, and so on. But then I'm greedy. I don't like just to have ghost story anthologies. I like (laughs) a lot of other tropes. So we're coming out this end of August, early September with Midnight in the Pentagram. And that is revolving around cults and possessions and demons and Satanism. All the nastiness. And here's your exclusive. The next two Midnight in the Pentagrams that are going to be announced are going to be on Brennan and Patrick's Deadhead podcast here first you heard it here first deadhead space deadhead space space. okay you're gonna lose the exclusive damn it all right get it i'm taking this over to ink heist sorry (laughs) no fuck those guys we got you first (laughs) okay um two new midnights that are coming up that we're going to be announcing for open submission is going to be a, the first one's going to be midnight from beyond the stars. And that is going to be an alien horror anthology. And then the next one is going to be midnight from the asylum. And that's going to be horror that revolves around insane asylums. I know Rich from Ink Ice would absolutely love the first one. I'm sure I like both of them, but that guy is obsessed with uh, UFOs. Yeah, um, listen, my favorite, even though what I've named the the publishing firm, long story short, my favorite movie of all time is uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. I thought you were going to say E.T. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say anything to you without laughing. <laughs> uh, okay, remember when I said I'm going to kick you in the nuts? Now I'm going to stab you in the eye. <laughs> Last time we You're talked, gonna... I thought it was the ale, but I don't. You're drinking coffee now. <laughs> I'm, I'm completely sober. Someone give this guy a beer. He's just acting too goofy. No. Ken, so it um, makes you giddy. <laughs> what? What'd you say? I said Ken just makes you giddy. Aw. 
Uh, yeah, he's like one of those guys that I can actually call a friend. He's like, leave me alone, dude. <laughs> I know. I'm always thrilled when I get a message from my buddy Patty. Yeah. So the thing, that is a great movie. I own it on DVD, too. Um, and I haven't watched it in a while, but that is just a film that you got to watch. Even if you don't like horror, it's just it's so reminiscent of Lovecraft um it's it's just one of those things where i was actually gonna bring it up when you said more is less um yeah you said more is less and that does get gory but it's pretty much dread and suspense driven it's a perfect film oh in my in my opinion it's a perfect film it's the story the characters the isolation, which is key for so many horror movies, is mm. you got it, or even books too. You have to have isolation. Um, so you've got your isolation. You've got an unhospitable unhis- landscape. You've got a music score from what's his name in in was it Ricky Morricone or something like that. The guy, remember. yeah, the guy's the the score is so haunting. You've got great acting with Kurt Russell as the lead. Um, you even got the dude from the the oatmeal commercials, and he's kick ass in that thing. And John fucking Carpenter. And John Carpenter. I mean, it's it's a perfect movie. I love it. John fucking Carpenter. And then the effects. <laughs> the effects are are real effects. They're not digital effects from Rob Botton. The guy's yeah, that guy was a master. I there's so many good effects. My favorite, and it's probably like a lot of them, is the head crab. That thing's so yeah. creepy. The effects, they still compete to today's, you know, bullshit CGI horror movies. 1982, and it still holds up today. What is this? 82, 92, 2000, 2012, 2022 is coming up. Yeah, you're 40 years later. Speaking of which, back to your earlier comment about the 90s, I don't remember much because uh, I was born in 89, and Brennan is not much older than me. Uh, you can suck it. <laughs> so, so, so I didn't. Uh, I I was probably reading Goosebumps in the late 90s and um or mid 90s, and I didn't get to experience the shitty times of uh, adult fiction. Oh, they were horrible in the 90s. Um, got, other than leisure horror, there wasn't anything good in the 90s. Early 90s, yes, but once you got into, like, mid-90s, it was horrible. Every, nobody, horror was such an ugly word. Nobody wanted to, to attach their train car to that. Everybody was avoiding, like, the plague. I think it's kind of cool. It seems like there's a, a golden age of horror right now. I keep hearing everyone say that, and it feels like it. I'm so new to it, though, I can't really be like, well, back when I started a whole year ago, you know, it was uh, not good. It's been well, great since I joined. Here's the thing. I mean, honestly, the resurgence in horror, in my opinion, started with Brian Keene. He's the one that introduced zombies into the mainstream again, got it back into our consciousness. And, yeah, it got played out, but he was the first. The guy opened up the industry, and then he championed it. He owned it, and he has he has been a part of so many authors' rise in the horror industry. The guy is he's an ambassador. That's why I um I don't know how to word this. I kind of look up to him for a few reasons as a podcaster because he's got a good show. He's a good host. And as, like, a person in a horror writer, I'm like, that's what I want to be when I'm older. Like, I want to be someone that can always promote. He's always cheerleading people. Like, that's how it should be. 
and you do that shit too. Brennan and I do that too. Like that's how it should be. I people that don't do that, they stick out like a sore thumb. I mean, I don't really. I kind of just kind of try well, separating. That's the beauty about the horror industry is you can smell a fake a mile away. Yeah. I mean, you can tell when someone's the real deal in the horror industry or someone's just dialing it in. They smell like one of them thriller writers. (laughs) Take your thriller shit and stick it. So, Brennan, do you have any questions? Because i got plenty, but I don't want to hog the air. (laughs) Yeah, um, I've got one more submitted question, if that's okay. Now, uh, Silver Shamrock is located in uh, Michigan, right? Correct. All right, so Layla Rivera of Fall River would like to know, why are your sports teams so bad? (laughs) Piss poor management. (laughs) You know, Um, I'm just realizing right now, not to cut you off, but if you put a backwards hat on Patrick, he looks like Matt Patricia. (laughs) (laughs) He's got to have the pencil in his ear, though. Which is a compliment because he's a literal rocket scientist, so watch Uh, out. He's he's on the hot seat in Detroit, let me tell you. If he doesn't do something this – well, if we have football this next year, if he doesn't do something this year, yeah, his ass is riding the rails out of town. They've already, like, pretty much told him that. Well, you can be a great assistant coach or defensive coach, but it doesn't mean you can lead a team. No, it's true. And you can't come in and take a team that has been that went to the playoffs the year before you came and say, well, we, you know, just because we lost in the first round of the playoffs, now we need this new coach to get you in there. And then you bring this new coach in and he, oh, by the way, now you're eight and eight. So speaking of uh, Detroit fans, how does Eminem feel about this? Uh, I haven't talked to Eminem recently, but um, I imagine. <laughs> I have no idea why Eminem feels about this. <laughs> I know he's a D- Detroit Lions fan, like that guy. He is. He's he's a Detroit boy, man. Um, he, total, total, he feels yeah. uh, he feels middle finger with these two raised way more than they need to be. <laughs> I, I'm I think Brennan hit the nail on the head. Yes. Yeah. Um. So real question. Um. With um. All of the reading you do for incoming Silver Shamrock stuff. Do you? get a chance to read for pleasure a lot um <laughs> he just rolled his eyes i rolled my <laughs> eyes and let the lips go yeah do you uh, get a chance to read for pleasure a little a little a little i've got a couple of books that i i have got going on right now um but they're they're taking forever to, to get through because i i feel so guilty you know i i if i pull one of those aside and i'm, I'm reading that for pleasure I feel like, well, you know, you really should be reading someone's manuscript because I've got so many that I need to get to. Um, it's a constant struggle with my inner soul, yes. <laughs> but I do get to read for pleasure sometimes. It's just whenever I can tell my inner soul to shut the hell up and I want to read some Clive Barker. <laughs> um, now, you're greedy, and so am I. Um, and now if this is a question you want to cut, I will be sure to do that. But... We talked about this about a month or two ago, maybe longer. I don't know. Time doesn't mean anything anymore. So apprenticeship program, is that still happening? If so, can we talk about that? (laughs) It is still on the radar, and it will happen, yes. To give you an exact date when that's going to, I don't have that. I can tell you a little bit about what I foresee it to be. Sure. um, And we can go from there. So we talked a little bit in the podcast about – what I wish we had for emerging writers. 
and there's just not enough information out there. One of the things that I would like to do is kind of pay it forward a little bit, and I would like to do an apprenticeship program, and I've got the bare bones of it written out on how it's going to go about. I haven't fine-tuned it to the point where I'm ready to roll it out. I've got a lot of other irons going in the fire. But in the future, what I'm looking to do is I'm looking to have an apprenticeship program where you take some submissions, you do so many open enrollments through the course of the year, you take some of the best ones on that, and you provide free editing and... I envision it being where if everything rolls the way it should, then you would get a Silver Shamrock contract for a debut novella, novel, what have you. Now, do you get a pin or a ribbon? So uh, when one's uh, successful in that, they can show it off to their friends, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, etc. Yes, I will have badges made. Um, you'll have official sh- Silver Shamrock publishing badge. That mm-hmm. you can show off to your friends, and you will get lots of dates and free drinks at the bar from it. It's kind of like the "This is Horror" badge that you get to display if you win. <laughs> Ken, where where did that idea kind of generate from? Um, kind of what we talked about with the the frustration of submitting stuff in and not knowing why I'm getting a rejection letter, just knowing that I got a rejection letter. What was wrong? What did I didn't I do right? What could I have done better? Um. I come from a coaching background, and that's kind of how I approach a lot of my business stuff is through coaching type of things where you take raw material, you mold it, and you make it the best that it can be. Um, like sometimes, how paper is made? Shut up, Patrick. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm shutting the hell up. <laughs> is there a mute button for him? <laughs> so He just no. has to hit it on his own. <laughs> You're in timeout now, Patrick. He's over there nodding. (laughs) No, um, it comes from that. It comes from the whole coaching background where I want to mold people into the best that they can be and, you know, to give them feedback and to to see what they can do. I I feel that you give enough people enough information and show me what you got, kid. Um, There's so many amazing pieces of talent out there that just need a little guidance. And if, I can provide that if my editors can provide that if my insight into the industry can provide that then I've done my job Um, I love this industry I love horror with every fiber of my being and there's so many amazing talents out there that just need a little bit of coaching and if we can do that then I feel like I've done something for the industry Uh, that's awesome that's, that's an admirable stance too you know it's um, you're not just looking to publish the same three authors over and over again whenever they, you know, uh, shit out the next novel. Um, literally looking for the next voice and, you know, to be able to kind of chisel that stone, you know, to say there's potential here. Um, and if I just kind of reject your story and send you away, then you're not going to know how to develop that potential correctly, but maybe even get frustrated and, 
you know, give up and become an accountant or something awful like that. Um, but no, <laughs> this on the flip side, it's, you know, I see potential here. And if we just tweak a little bit, you know, you're going to have uh, these these potential authors are going to have every bit as much right uh, to be published as some of the names that have five, six, seven books out there. Yeah. And I'm with you on that. Listen, would it be great to get the next Stephen King? Absolutely. That's a cash cow. That's that's wonderful for business. But long story short, I'm not in this to make a bazillion dollars. If it happens, fantastic. But that's not my goal. I have a day job. Um, I own another company that makes that's what pays my bills. That's what is going to put my kids through college. That's what's doing it. This is about an industry that I love that I want to see thrive and I want to see prosper. And I'll, here, I'll give you a, a perfect case in point. Um, I won't say the author's name. If you dug hard enough, you could figure it out. But there was an author that I've published that came to me with their first manuscript. They, Because of whatever situation they had, they wrote this manuscript. Now get this. They wrote this manuscript on their phone, not from a computer, not from a laptop, not from any type of keyboard other than their phone. This is what they wrote it on. I read this manuscript and trust me, the clunkiness of trying to read something that was done from an app on the phone, that was tough. But I'm here to tell you that manuscript kicked ass. That wow. manuscript, that manuscript, you know, what? I am going to say the name because she knows Shannon Felton. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. I just that, didn't want to say it on the air. No, no. She, she's, she's, she owns it. I mean, it was, it's kind of a, a, a run and joke and stuff with us. I give her a hard time with it. But yeah, she wrote um, Prisoners of Stuartville on her phone. What'd she do? Okay. She uh, had a laptop. She, she had a laptop that was broken. Yeah. She had a laptop that was broken and just. She's one of these ones that she she gives to her family more than she takes care of herself. Mm. So it was like, mm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take care of that. You know, when my kids could use you know clothes or this or that. You know, you know she's given to her family. I mean, she's just a just an absolute giver. And she didn't feel that it was right to be in her quote selfish and purchase something for herself so extravagant when she could be given that to her family. So she wrote this thing in her spare time on her phone. Wow. I liked her a lot before because a few times I've talked to her. She's just such a – she's like a motherly figure. She sweet. is a sweetheart. She, She's one of these ones that I just want to like lift up and put on a pedestal, and she wants to keep crawling down and hiding. She, <laughs> she does not think that she's as good as she is. And I'm like, Shannon, you have no idea – You've got an amazing voice, and it deserves to be out there. The fact that she wrote an entire manuscript on a phone is – I wasn't trying to laugh in a rude way when I asked that question. I just – I I never heard that before. And I have a hard enough time writing a manuscript with all the perfect equipment. Imagine trying to do this damn thing on your phone. No, I couldn't. I mean her reasons behind it, her the fact that she did that. I'm a huge Shannon fan now, even more so, man. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, it was it was very cool. Um, I didn't know that she didn't she didn't admit that to me till after I like accepted it, and I I kept we kept trying to go through the editing process. We're like, 
what the hell is wrong with this thing? It's like so wonky. What did you, what did you write this thing on? Like it just didn't like come across with Microsoft Word. It just, it didn't, something wasn't gelling. And then she goes, well, I have to admit. And then she told us that we're like, well, what did you do? Well, like again, I'd never heard of it. And again, I had so much more respect for her because she did that too. It just, it blew me away. I'm like, you wrote this on a damn phone. It's like someone writing Salem's Lot on a cocktail napkin or something. Now, <laughs> I don't know what to say to that, so I'm just going to move <laughs> to my next question, which is relevant because Brennan said something about authors shitting on stories. Is that how I do it? Because I've been writing it on a computer. So uh, should I, in fact, just eat paper and take a shit and then hopefully words come out on it? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, know how, I, I don't know how Max, Max Booth says all the shit he does without laughing. <laughs> I, I can't do it. Go ahead, Brandon. I'm done. <laughs> I, I have to imagine. He, he must practice in front of a mirror to keep that straight. That's not something you can just, you know, that, that's not something you can just do. That's years of practice. Like, I, I would highly recommend listening to the Max's podcast called Ghoulish, where he talks to Michael David Wilson. The whole goddamn time, I'm just losing my shit. I Michael doesn't even know when he's Max is being serious most of the time. It's hilarious. Hey, no, dude, should, I, I don't need that. <laughs> I, I would love to have, you know, Max on here at some point, but I, I'm not sure that I could figure out when he's being serious either. And that's intimidating as hell. <laughs> I want, I want Max on here, but he, he hasn't talked to me much. And I can't tell if it's part of a ploy where he's just having one long joke. It's hard to tell. Um, it's not. It's not. It never is. I do have a question. As far as series go, now is that ever an option? Have you thought of it, or is there something in the works that we might be able to know about? Series, as in. As in one book followed by. <laughs> do you want? All right, you're getting kicked in the junk, you're getting stabbed in the eye. Now I'm going to have to, like, chop a nipple off or something. I don't know where – you're running out of body parts I'm going to do bodily harm to. Chokes on you. I have zero nipples. <laughs> uh. He messed with the wrong people. <laughs> I've, been, I've been listening to a lot of Max's interviews recently, and I can't keep a straight face at all. Um, no, I'm look, just I, curious. Uh, so what did you put in that coffee? <laughs> Just creamer. I'm starting to think pure 151. I don't know. Dude. <laughs> okay, so if you're if you're referring to, am I gonna do? Am I gonna publish a series from an author? Is that what you're going at? Yeah, I'm just curious if that's ever an option. Um, it's definitely an option, but here, you know what? That actually brings up a, a point that I've never been able to discuss, and I would love to discuss. So let me take a couple moments. Um. I see everybody and their brother and their sister and their neighbor's dog trying to write a trilogy. What the fuck does everybody want to do a trilogy for? I don't understand that. Let me tell you what it's really like from a publisher standpoint. When I, because I get manuscripts like this all the time. This is the first of a trilogy. How? Well, first of all, how the fuck do you know your first one's a trilogy? Okay. How do you have it mapped out where it's going to be a trilogy? And if it is that way, why not just make a big fucking book out of it? (laughs) Or, you know, okay, but here I digress. Let's go back. Everybody wants to do a trilogy. For some reason, a trilogy has got stuck into people's heads, not a one and done or maybe a two and done or even a series of seven. But a trilogy seems to be some sort of magical number. Why? I don't know. 
Let me tell you what. It, yeah. Okay. I'm seriously. Sure. I, you're you're probably right. You're probably exactly right. But let me tell you what it's like as a publisher, unless you are a known name that is just your name alone is going to sell these books. Publishers don't want trilogies. Here's the reason why. Let's say you get the first one. It's got to sell gangbusters. And I mean gangbusters. Before I want to see a second one. The second one is never going to sell as well as the first one. Now listen, I'm not just saying that from unknown unknown authors. I'm saying that from every author. I'll give you a perfect case in point. Stephen King, the second of the um, Dark Tower series, did not sell as well as the first. Still to this day, the first Dark Tower book has sold probably 60% more than what the, the second one in the series is. And it continually tapers off from there in sales. Every single series that you have ever seen, trilogy or longer, the second one never is good as the first, I don't say he's good. It doesn't sell as well as the first one. And the third one sells even less. So unless you are knocking it completely out of the park, they don't want that. I don't know. Maybe some do. I don't. Because, again, it's a hard thing to sell. And the worst ones are the ones that are like, they come to me and they've self-published their first one. And they want me to pick up their second one. Really? I'm looking at Goodreads. You've got five reviews and four of them are from your relatives. (laughs) Um, It doesn't make fiscal sense. As much as I champion the underdog and I want them to succeed, you got to have the right tools. And sometimes, people... Trilogies are not the way to go. Now, let me help you out here. Let's say you write a book, and it's just, holy shit, this thing is amazing. Everybody loves it. They want to hear more. Okay, if the story deserves to be expanded upon, expand upon it. But I think going into it as a trilogy, if you are not a, an absolute A-list or even a A-minus list, I think it's a mistake. I really do. Or, okay, let me one more point on that. Or... I think that being your first set of books, being a trilogy, is definitely a mistake. Go into it and get yourself some stuff underneath you. Get yourself a novel. Get yourself a novella. Get your, you know, start going through some different subtropes in the horror industry. Get yourself a following. Once you've done that, then if you want to go back and make, you know, the second book or the third book, now you've got a much greater chance of success. Because if, if, if it's not about success, then it's it's ego-driven. And when you're trying to be published, you got to give the publisher something they want to publish. It's got to be something where they feel they can sell it. And a trilogy, is that's a hard thing to sell. Good points. Uh, I'm not sure how to follow that up. Uh, Brennan, do you? Oh, thanks. Um, LAUGHTER <laughs> Ken, I ran out of written questions a long time ago, so I'm wondering, is there anything, and and this could be for potential authors submitting, potential people looking to maybe start their own press, is there any piece, pieces of advice that we didn't cover in the last hour and a half that you would like to throw out there? Do your homework. Um, it's when, when I see a lot of small presses fail, it's because they haven't done their homework. Also, you better be ready fiscally because you're not going to make money your first three to five years. That's just average. 
Okay. So you better be able to weather the storm. If you don't have the fiscal ability to do that, you might want to think twice. What I see people do is I see people start small presses. They don't have the money to be able to do it right. So they start cutting corners. Little to no editing is more common than you know. Cheap covers, they don't want to pay for good artwork because that's expensive. It is. I'll tell you exactly how much it is. It's expensive. And they go and have a friend do it or what, you know, they they try to learn on the fly and it comes across looking like something from a third grader did it. (laughs) And I'm sorry, but when, and I've said this in so many podcasts and I'm going to keep saying it until people pay attention, people want to say don't judge a book by its cover but that's what we do folks that's what we do when you've got so many options sometimes most of the time the only time that that you're going to make that choice is based off what you see on the cover does it pull you in don't skimp on the artwork don't skip on the editing because here's the thing let's say you publish a story and it's not someone's cup of tea you know it, it just didn't, it, it really wasn't the genre maybe I wanted, or a subtroper type of thing. It really wasn't what I wanted. But if it's filled with editing errors or lack of editing, the chance of that reader giving that author a second chance at maybe a different subtrope, you just dropped it to slim to none because you've made the reading experience excruciating. Nobody wants that. Do the editing. Now, when you're doing the editing, it better not be from a friend or a family member because they will not be critical. They simply won't. And I've, I've also heard from many authors where they're like, oh, I'm my own editor. I'm an editor. Yeah, but not for your own stuff. You can't do it for your own stuff. You can't critically think on your own stuff. You will gloss over so many things and not even know you're doing it. I've seen it a million times. So that's my advice. Yeah, uh, that that's great advice. Um, I've said it on Twitter about like, you need an editor. You need a good cover artist. And I got friggin' attacked. I got lambasted or where the fuck that phrase is. And uh, you know who you got lambasted by? Bunch of a bu- bunch of people that were editors and said I'm a fucking asshole. No, a bunch <laughs> of people that haven't the a bunch of people that haven't been published and haven't done well. Yeah. Okay? I, I, you you're not gonna hear that from. Listen, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. The wheel's already been invented. You know what you do, folks? You go and you emulate the successful people. That's right. a key business point. The Brian Keens of the world will never tell you to edit your own stuff. No. Why? Because it doesn't work. He knows it. Any successful author knows it. Right. Yeah, I think that's probably a great point to end. Uh, Brennan, you want to close out the show, my man? Yeah, Ken, I want to thank you for coming on and spending like two hours with us. Um, and we always just have such a blast talking to you. You're such a fun guy. And I want to throw out there to our, uh, seasoned listeners, all three of them. No, are we up to four now, man? Um, I think, I think four and a half, four and a half. Did you buy a couple? Where'd these, where'd these other two come from? We bought them. Yeah. Cleaned (laughs) out the, cleaned out the piggy bank. I found Um, it on Craigslist. (laughs) So anybody who, who listens, uh, hopefully caught the episode that Patrick and I did, uh, horror classics with, uh, we, we dissected, uh, the girl next door with, uh, by Jack Ketchum. 
Uh, the next one we're going to be taking on is going to be Ghoul by Brian Keene, and Ken is going to come back on when we uh, get through that book, when we record an episode to talk about it, and he's going to join us talking about that one. Now, uh, Ken, is that one, you haven't read that one before, right? I have not. That has been on my TBR forever, and for whatever reason, it's it's just never, I've never grabbed it, but it is, uh, it, all I do is hear nothing but great stuff by it, and I cannot wait to dig into this thing. Yeah, yeah and, so uh, that's all three of us. We yeah. we have not hit it before, so that's that's exciting. I I can't wait to have that conversation. He's Ken has three three thousand or so books, so I think that's <laughs> why he never covered it. Oh, you so, stooly. You know, snitches end up in ditches. I just want you to know that. <laughs> So, again, Patrick, I, I love you to death, but I'm going to say one more mean thing, man. Um, <laughs> despite the, is it going to be embarrassing when Ken, who has, you know, uh, 10 feet of slush he's buried under, reads this book faster than you? <laughs> uh, you know what? I've just accepted that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nice guy, and I got only that going for me. So. <laughs> you know, Patrick, if you'd like, I can message Brian and see if it comes in pop-up form. I don't know. Um, I'd appreciate that because I don't think he's going to take my call. <laughs> Where can people find you while you get coffee? Wait, did you mean for me to bring that up on the show? No. Okay. Gotta text <laughs> what? <from> <laughs> I gotta text what, I, from... what I said was we are <laughs> we already uh, we already covered the "Where can people find you?" aspect. You were out putting uh, you know uh, some liquor of your choice into coffee and pretending that you're just you know getting a quick pick me up. I'm just drinking coffee at 11 o'clock at night. What's the big deal? <laughs> um. So. Ken, as always, thank you. We appreciate it. Where can people follow you in case they don't know for some reason? You can find us on silvershamrockpublishing.com. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On Facebook and Instagram, it is silvershamrockpublishing. And on Twitter, it is under shamrock underscore silver. Thanks for joining us, man. Thank you, everybody, for joining and listening to this. And for everyone that submitted a question, we appreciate it. Brennan, thank you for being a part of this as always. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Have a good night. See you guys. We are in your mind. We are all around. You are now leaving Deadhead Space.